From the Partnership for Public Service, you're listening to Transition Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at presidential transitions. I'm David Marchick. Today on Transition Lab, we're focusing on how the press covers presidential transitions. We have two exceptional guests who literally have seen it all and written about it all. Nancy Cook is a White House correspondent for Politico. She'll be covering the 2020 transition. She's worked as a reporter and editor for Newsweek, National Journal, and Fast Company. Andrew Restucia covers the White House for the Wall Street Journal. In the last cycle, he wrote for Politico, where he and Nancy collaborated on a bunch of stories on the 2016 transition. If you're interested in presidential transitions, follow their writing, and you can also follow them on Twitter. Nancy, Andrew, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Well, why don't we start with a little personal background? How did you all get into political journalism and and what drew you to it? Nancy, do you want to start? Sure. Well, you know, I really became a journalist initially because I had always wanted to be a writer. And I thought, well, being a journalist is a way to, you know, get paid to write. But it turns out that I really love the reporting. And I moved to DC in 2011 and started out covering a bunch of policy areas. I covered economic policy and healthcare. And I really fell into White House reporting because Andrew and I were both senior policy reporters at Politico at the time. And we both were covering our policy beats and writing a lot of big picture stories about the campaign and really covering politics through more of a policy lens. And then we were both assigned by some pretty forward looking editors to cover both the Clinton and Trump transitions. And that was really what put me much more firmly in in the camp of becoming a political reporter and then eventually a White House reporter because I covered the last transition so closely. How about you, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, so the last part, obviously, Nancy and I were both chosen to cover the transition. But before that, I moved to D.C. in 2008. I'm at the very tail end of the Bush administration and covered uh, energy and environmental policy for quite a few years. And then eventually made my way to Politico, where I started covering broader policy issues. And that's where Nancy and I sort of began overlapping, covering the transition. So you used to collaborate and share stories and share your writing, and now you're competitors. So, Andrew, what's your strategy to scoop Nancy and make sure you get the good story and she doesn't? Well, Nancy's tough to scoop. She's a really good reporter. We've we worked together really, really closely at Politico. The Journal and, and Politico approach things, I think, slightly differently. So I feel like we're competing. I mean, we're competing for big picture scoops, for sure. But I don't feel like we're as directly competing in the same way as we used to. Maybe I'm wrong, Nancy. I don't know. No, I think that's true. I think the journal, you know, they want bigger picture things. You know, Politico has sort of a faster metabolism and, you know, wants like sort of smaller pieces of breaking news than the journal would be interested in. So I do think that although we're still on the same beat, we're both covering the White House, you know, just the nature of our news outlets wants different things. So we do compete against each other less than you would think, but uh, we're still good friends. And I'm always very happy when I run into Andrew at the White House and I get to see him. Well, Nancy, do you think that Andrew's writing has improved or declined since joining (laughs) the uh, journal? I think Andrew's a great journalist. He's been a great journalist since I've known him. And I think the journal is incredibly lucky to have him. And I think he's done really great work there. Well, let's turn to the subject of this podcast, which is covering transitions. And I was thinking about it you know, the Partnership for Public Service advises transition teams essentially to announce they're doing the work, but then to stay quiet and not talk about it, to let the campaigns focus on the campaigns and the transitions do the work quietly in the background. So how do you cover 
transitions when they really don't want to talk to you. Yeah, I think it's sort of the first problem you run into when you start covering this as a journalist. I mean, neither of us, I think I can speak for you, Nancy, had covered a transition before this, at least in a formal way. And certainly the Clinton campaign and the Clinton transition team followed that advice really to the T. I mean, they, of course, acknowledged that they had a transition, but really didn't want to talk about what they were doing, partly because they didn't want to be seen as sort of measuring the drapes in the White House. I mean, they are, Clinton was already seen and criticized for, for sort of her, the inevitability factor, which of course didn't come to pass. They really didn't want to play into that. The Trump people saw themselves as sort of an underdog and as a result were, I think, not as organized in some ways, certainly when it comes to whether or not people should talk to the press. And as a result, we were able to make a lot of inroads with the Trump people pretty early on. And that, of course, paid off when the president won. I think there was a real ragtag element to the Trump transition that made it sort of a goldmine to reporters. You know, basically, there was the transition team down in D.C. run by former Governor Chris Christie and some of his top, you know, allies and friends and advisors, and then a bunch of policy people. But really, the power center in the Trump campaign was up in New York. And so I think because there was that geographical distance and because Trump was an outsider and it really wasn't full of people who had tons of experience in politics apart from Christie and just a handful of people, I think that the, the Trump people were just much more relaxed about you know, grabbing coffee with reporters or sort of talking about what they were up to because they just didn't feel like the stakes were that high and they didn't think they were going to win. And so I, I do feel like Andrew and I were able to get to know a lot of the you know, the lower, mid-level, high-level Trump transition people and able to sort of write a lot of interesting stories about what that looked like. And I think that 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 mentality really ended up carrying over into the White House. And so it's really was interesting to watch that evolution. So it's kind of a field day for reporters because everybody will talk to you and there's not as much discipline. Whereas with the Clinton team, they pretty much didn't return your calls that much or didn't return your emails. Yeah, the Clinton people were just much, much more paranoid about how they would be perceived. And there were so many people who had been in politics for so long. They were just much more cautious and careful. They were like the typical Washington types, right, who are sort of very, very careful about their about how they're being perceived. And then also the other thing that we had going for us, and Nancy got at this, is just that the Trump campaign just wasn't paying attention to what the transition was doing at all. And of course, this is before the election, until after the election. And then, of course, they sort of upended the entire operation that Chris Christie had put together. And so in not paying attention, you know, we were paying attention because everyone wondered, okay, what is Trump going to actually, how is he actually going to govern? No one really knew he was, he was sort of all over the map on, on policy issues. And you had these people in DC sort of putting the flesh on the bone of, of what a Trump presidency would look like. And so it was a really, really fascinating story. And around this time, four years ago, Andrew, you wrote a pretty big profile of the Trump transition team. And essentially, you know, you articulated what the partnership knew because we'd worked closely with both the Clinton and the, and the Christie part of the transition team, which is that Chris Christie, Rich Bagger and others did a pretty good job. They were highly organized, professional, disciplined, and, and they did all what one would expect of a transition team to do up until essentially Chris Christie was, was pushed out. Yeah, I mean, Chris Christie took this seriously. He, of course, was a governor him himself. He knew how to manage and run an organization. And I think it was a surprise for people at the time that they were actually preparing for the possibility that they could win. Because don't forget, I mean, no one, I mean, not no one. I mean, Trump was, of course, the candidate, but people really didn't think Trump was going to win. I mean, Clinton 
was the, the presumed next president this time. So when I wrote that story, I think that there were a lot of eyebrows that were raised because you know, this showed that they were actually putting in place policy plans. They had teams on various issues that were coming up with ideas. This was not the sort of Twitter-focused Trump campaign that uh, everyone was used to. And I would say, too, just to piggyback off of that, you know, Christie has a legal background. Some of the other people around him have legal backgrounds. You know, they were thinking through like ethics pledges and, you know, vetting, and they, they were really thinking through the mechanics of it. And it, it does make me wonder what the Trump administration would have looked like had Christie not been fired, you know, just days after the election. And if, you know, some of Trump's top aides hadn't dumped all the transition work that he had put together in those binders, basically in the trash and just started fresh. Right. And in fact, he was on Transition Lab and he basically said that a lot of the Trump cabinet nominees who encountered vetting problems and basically were derailed, they flagged those issues in their briefing books and basically said, don't pick them. And the Trump team went ahead and picked them and those nominations had problems. Well, I think the best example of that, just based on my own reporting, was Mike Flynn. I reported on a meeting that Christie had up at Trump Tower with uh, you know, a bunch of people. And this was during the transition, sort of to- closer to the election. And basically, Mike Flynn walked in the room. And I think Ivanka at the time, you know, thanked him for everything he'd done during the campaign and said, you can have any job you wanted. And Christie, according to people in the room, he was really horrified by that, because he saw all the potential problems that Mike Flynn brought to the administration. And I think that, you know, we saw that really bear out. And once the New York people came to D.C., after the election, that's, uh, you know, more or less how a lot of people got jobs. They, you know, had connections to the campaign. They felt like they had done a lot of good work and they were given jobs, you know, almost on the spot without much vetting being done. One of my favorite stories that Andrew and I wrote shortly after Trump won was just about how they were actually vetting and picking people. And I like the story because it just showed how insane you know, it was someone would call Trump or someone would say to Pence or someone else, oh, this person would look be good. And then literally like two days later, Trump would call them and they would have the job or, you know, the person would go to Trump Tower and meet with Trump for 20 minutes and have the job. And there was really no vetting of people's backgrounds, potential conflicts of interest, ethics. It was really like, does Trump think that you're out of central casting? Does he have a good vibe with you when he meets with you in Trump Tower? And, and where does that recommendation come from? And that's how so many people ended up with jobs in the administration. And I think we saw they that really tripped them up several times. And I think we were the first really reporters to raise those red flags in terms of the lack of vetting and what that could mean down the road as confirmation hearings started. And of course, you know, we had then months and months and now years of um, these vetting problems. So do you think there's a high correlation in the way that a transition team behaves, the discipline, the culture, the approach of it? and the way their candidate might govern? I think there was in the Trump team, just because basically so many problems that the administration has faced over the last four years in terms of personnel problems, lack of vetting, you know, having to fire people, investigations being launched on Capitol Hill, I think stemmed from not really having in place after Christie was fired, you know, a serious transition operation and just sort of doing everything on the fly having people put friends in positions, installing lobbyists as head of agencies, you know, allowing like Ryan's previous brought a bunch of people in from the RNC. I'm not saying that they were not qualified necessarily, but just really people wanting to stack the administration with friends. And I think so many of those problems do go back to, you know, the transition and then the first few months of the administration. And I think had they done things differently, then 
it would have been a whole different ballgame for the Trump administration, but then it also wouldn't be the Trump administration. The problems that we saw during the transition, they really speak to just Trump's governing style. And they really start at the top from the president. I mean, he sets that tone for better or worse. And it's not just Christie who, you know, was ignored. I mean, even after Christie was pushed out, there remained this group of people who, you know, were pretty long time Washington seasoned George W. Bush administration folks, a lot of them, who were really trying to put in place a structure, even after Christie was removed, uh, when Pence took over. And they were there, there was this constant tension between those people trying to put together some sort of more formalized vetting process and the people in Trump's inner circle who just didn't find that to be a priority. Let's talk about the arc of reporting on a transition. So we looked back at all of your 2016 reporting and kind of the arc of your reporting went like this. So around this time, the conventions, that's when the transitions really kick in. That's when the GSA space is available. That's when all the services kick in for the for the candidates. You did a bunch of stories on basically who was running the transition, what they were doing, and what they were up to. Then right before the election, you did a bunch of additional stories about essentially transition teams ramping up, getting ready for the day after the election. And then post-election, the story is mostly focused on nominations or rumored nominations. Do you think that arc will be followed this cycle as well? I I think so. I mean, I I think it depends on what the outcome of the election is. I mean, if Trump remains in power and wins a second term, then, you know, I think there will be a lot of questions about who serves in his second term and are they vetted and, you know, it, but it won't be sort of as dramatic a shift as if there's a whole new, candidates sort of taking power and a whole new group of people coming in. And I think if Biden wins, there will be all of those similar questions about the transition and the same arc of reporting about the ramping up and the vetting and the personnel questions and the cabinet selections. But then I think there's going to be a whole nother storyline or storylines that open up about the Trump administration's reaction to that Biden's victory and what they do in response. And you know, if there are things that, you know, do they make it easy for people to take power? Do they make it easy for Biden folks to access the agencies? Do they make it easy to give Biden people security clearances? And so I do think there will be a bunch of questions that come up uh, just based on, you know, how the how Trump reacts if he loses. For sure. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, the Trump transition story is just, a, as, as Nancy said, a totally different one, right? Because continuing on into a second term, uh, doesn't require the same level of effort. And, and of course, it's, it is a huge endeavor, but doesn't require the same sort of starting from scratch that a uh, Biden administration would entail. So the really, the really interesting story, of course, will be if Biden wins and, and how those during those those precious months between the election and the inauguration, you know, what happens between these two these two camps who couldn't be more different in almost every way. I do think if Trump wins, there will be real questions about, you know, he's just because he cycled through so many, you know, cabinet heads already and, and different people in all these acting positions. I do think there will be real questions about who are the Republicans that want to serve in a second Trump administration, given all of the turnover and, and then also how they vet people. You know, I wrote a story recently with two of my colleagues about how the head of the presidential personnel office, which helps staff all the agencies, has been going around agency to agency and sort of asking people if they want to serve in a second term and then basically giving what amounts to a sort of a verbal loyalty test to see how loyal people are to Trump. And I think that there will be real questions about what the criteria is to get a job in the second Trump administration. Is it 
qualifications? Is it experience? Or is it just that you profess your loyalty to the president? One of the stories you did, Andrew, was on the location of the 2016 transition team. So they were both in the same building. You know, we had Ed Meyer, who ran the Clinton team, and Rich Bagger, who ran the Trump team on the podcast. And I said, you know, did you ever find yourselves in the same elevator, kind of looking at each other, looking down at your feet, not knowing what to say? And tell us about that story. Yeah, I remember, if I remember correctly at the time, you know, it was sort of a color story about the awkwardness of them being several floors apart in the same shared government office space. You know, I think also at the time there was some concerns just about security, about, you know, making sure that the two transition teams didn't, you know, he- overhear conversations between them. And, you know, it was right near the White House, on, I think on Pennsylvania or 17th Street. And so Nancy and I would occasionally go to Pete's Coffee, which is just a few doors down from where their transition space was. And we just sit and wait and see who came in. And we saw, we would see Christie people, we would see Clinton people. And that was how we got a lot of our initial tips on, you know, who was actually working for the teams. Because remember, like they're not advertising publicly who, who these people are. I mean, they're the sort of the top level were well known, but beyond that, I mean, some of these team these teams had dozens and dozens of people. Some just on a volunteer basis, some not. So if you spotted a you know a lobbyist or someone else in that coffee shop, you could follow up with them and try to figure out what was going on. Well, let's talk about the cabinet names and the selection process and how you cover it. I actually looked back at one of your stories, which a few days after the election predicted the following: Newt Gingrich would be Secretary of State, an oil executive named Forrest Lucas would be Secretary of the Interior. And Rudy Giuliani, the former mayor, would become attorney general. Obviously, none of those came to pass. So how do you source these stories and how much solid information do you need to run potential names like that? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, so a couple things. First, you know, this was sort of, I I don't remember exactly which story you're referring to, but I think it was just like who could serve in the cabinet and across like every single agency. You know, I mean, these these were real names that people were really talking about in the in the administration. So, yeah, some of them didn't turn out to be to be right, and I think that's partly because you know there were there are sort of a bunch of different power centers in the in the Trump administration, and they were all pulling for various things. And then a lot of these decisions really got made at the last minute. So you know, things were changing in real time, you know, as as things unfolded. But it, you know, it's also a reminder that you know, really at the end of the day it's Trump himself who's going to make this final decision. So all of his, his advisors may be pushing various names, but you know it's, it's really Trump who's going to decide. So you were getting information from senior people who said, oh, it's going to be Giuliani at, at the Justice Department. And you would run with that, even though a lot of those names didn't turn out to get those jobs. Right. I mean, I think our stories on individual cabinet nominations were pretty spot on. I mean, I think we broke the story about Wilbur Ross to commerce, Elaine Chow at transportation. I think we probably broke more than almost anyone else in terms of which cabinet secretaries were going to be nominated. But yeah, I mean, it was, you know, true at the time and people were sort of throwing names out left and right. Certainly we didn't cast it as a definitive list of who would get each job. You know, I just wonder if the lesson here for someone who wants to get the nomination is not to be in one of these stories because you might have a better chance of getting the job if you're not in the story. I think that part of the point that Andrew is trying to make is that, you know, I think Trump would have loved to hire like Newt Gingrich and Rudy Giuliani and give them a cabinet post. I think that he wasn't able to because, you know, of vetting issues or concerns like that. But but there were definitely names in the ether. And I do think that part of the reporting on the cabinet stuff did really show us, as Andrew said, the fiefdoms in the White House and sort of the different camps. 
and how extreme that was going to be. And that's really been a theme throughout covering this White House. There's always, regardless of like who the chief of staff is and who the top people are, there always ends up being distinct camps. And you sometimes hear really different information based on sort of which camp or who you're talking to in the White House. And so it can be hard to always tell like who's going to come out on top based on these different factions or fiefdoms. And that was true during the transition. And that's true now in the White House. And I think that's, you know, there's always a short list of names that get circulated around for any individual major cabinet post. And, you know, it's usually like a half dozen or so people. And sometimes none of those names get picked. And sometimes, you know, there's an obvious candidate who then, you know, moves in. But certainly in terms of sourcing, like we would never run a story saying it's going to be this person, you know, without really 100% having that nailed down. And I think the stories that we did do that said that, you know, whether it was, I think it was like, I think we, we broke the news of about a half dozen cabinet secretaries. So to be a definitive story where you say this is going to be the person, would you have to hear from the press secretary or the chief of staff or someone essentially authorized to tell you? Or what would you need to run a story that says this person's going to get this job? Well, I think that the standard of Politico would be like two sources, high level with like direct knowledge of the process. But the thing is, I mean, the only way that you could have known for sure with the Trump transition would have been if Trump had told you himself. And even, you know, as a White House reporter, I know that he changes his mind about things a lot, too. And so it would almost depend, like, did you catch him at exactly the hour when he's made the decision? And are you sure he's not going to change his mind? And he did do that. You know, on a number of these high level people, he would tell someone one day that he was going to pick this person and then the next day change his mind. Um, and that, that has continued through this, this presidency. I think because so many people talked to reporters on the, on the sly, you know, we had almost an overabundance of information. And so the trick was, and you know, as we continued covering the White House, the trick continues to be like determining what is good information and what is bad information. I certainly wouldn't need a, the, the press secretary to tell us directly in order to run something. Like we don't rely on confirmation from press secretaries to run stories because we, we would never run stories otherwise. It's in, it's in the press secretary's interest to never tell you any of that information. I do think it'll be interesting when Biden, if Biden wins, if he, if he becomes president, that I think that they will be much more buttoned up about even just speculation about who will get jobs. I'm sure that there will be short lists that are leaked, but it's going to be, I think, a lot more difficult to, to be able to say, you know, like an hour or two before they make an announcement on the cabinet secretary, okay, they're going to announce this person. And- well, you saw that with the VP selection. I mean, that that did not leak from the Biden camp. You know, they broke that themselves. So I think that that's potentially a harbinger of what it will be like to cover a Biden transition if that happens. Yeah. In fact, I'm working closely with, you know, everybody on this. And I asked someone in the Biden camp who's pretty well placed two or three hours before the Harris pick was announced. I wouldn't even, I didn't ask, Hey, who's going to, who are you going to pick? I just said, are you going to make an announcement today? And the person said, I can't tell you, I'm not telling you anything. And that was two hours. So pretty interesting. One story you wrote during the last cycle was about how aspiring political appointees were spending literally hundreds of thousands of dollars on high-priced lawyers to do a self-vet, basically to have them look at all their problems, what pitfalls, you know, what would happen if they were nominated. What was going on in that story, and, and will that happen again this cycle? I think if Trump wins, that won't happen this cycle, because I don't think that 
the Trump people sort of care enough. Like, I don't think they they care about the vetting enough to, you know, have people invest all that money in making sure the vetting is there. I mean, maybe you would have to to appease some of the ethics lawyers. Like if you have if you're very wealthy and you have complicated finances that you need to untangle. But I don't think normal people entering the administration would do that if it's a Trump administration. But, you know, if it's a Biden administration, potentially, I mean, there's just a bunch of sort of high priced lawyers around town, particularly for high level appointees and cabinet secretaries who over the years, this is part of their law practice where they basically help people go through the vetting process, untangle financial things, meet the ethics requirements. And so if the Biden administration wins and they take vetting you know, seriously, like the Obama administration did, then I could see you know, these lawyers having quite a bit of business again. Looking back at your coverage in 2016, what do you all think you did well and what would you like to improve upon this cycle? I mean, I, I just think that there were some early, some early reporting that we did just, as I said earlier, like on the lack of vetting, the way the hiring process was sort of chaotic, you know, the way policy was really like made on the fly, like there were policy plans and, you know, binders of policy, but then, you know, Trump would say something and everything would scramble. And I think at the time we were reporting on like discrete instances in which that happened, but I'm proud of that reporting because it's actually like a, a feature of the White House and has become a pattern. And I think that, you know, the reporting looks prescient. I guess, you know, this time, I think, I guess this time with the Biden and Trump transitions, you know, there's there's potentially such big issues at stake, you know, particularly if Biden wins, not just about like who gets which appointment, but also is the transition, does it go well? Does it go smoothly? Does it go graciously? Do people have access to things? So I think that there will be some some bigger picture stories that I would want to focus on and not not as much minutia as like who gets the top slot at an agency or the number two slot or things like that. Yeah, I agree. I think just the sort of transition of power itself is going to be an amazing story if one does take place. And I'm, I'm also interested to see how the transition, the Biden transition team differentiates itself or if it differentiates itself from the Obama White House. Uh, obviously, the, the Biden team has people from, you know, the Obama world working on it. And so it'll be interesting to see if they stake out slightly different positions than than they had under Obama and how they sort of explain those changes. Right. I think every president has to put their own stamp on it. We had Andy Card on the podcast. He talked a lot about how George H.W. Bush wanted to signal significant change from Reagan, even though he was Reagan's vice president. So presumably that would happen again if Biden were to win. Definitely. So Nancy, you mentioned, I just want to poke around about the big storylines about this transition. And when I get calls from reporters, they're pretty much all about Trump. What's Trump going to do? Is he cooperating? Is he taking the transition process seriously? And, you know, he has people below him who are working on transition issues, and they're actually doing a good job. And when I tell reporters that, they act surprised and shocked. So the fact that they're focused on this and, and following the law, does that surprise and shock you? It doesn't surprise me that there's people below Trump who are taking it seriously and, you know, trying to do the best they, they can. And with my reporting, even back in January before COVID really hit the U.S., I was hearing chatter that, you know, folks like Jared Kushner were starting to think about the transition and were starting to think about who could fill some top jobs in the second term. So I do think it has been on their radar screen. I just think that they've ended up dealing with the pandemic and an economic downturn for the past several months. And so they've been quite distracted. But 
I do think that there are people in there who take things seriously. There are people who come from big corporations of the corporate world. And I think that some of them are very focused on it. But I think that in the Trump administration, really, the president is, you know, the hub of the operation, and he's always at the center of everything. And so you can have a million people making lists of personnel and doing things like that. But it's really going to be the president who will set the tone and, and determine whether or not, you know, hiring is efficient if he wins a second term. And then if he loses, he will really set the tone for what the transfer of power looks like. Andrew, you've broken some stories on the Trump team's efforts to plan a second term and also to plan for a presidential transition if there is one. So what have you written about there and who are the key people? Yeah, so one person to watch really closely is Chris Liddell. He is a deputy chief of staff at the White House. Um, He is sort of leading the internal discussions about certainly organizing the internal infrastructure around how they're thinking about a second term. He's been doing this for months. There have been sessions at Camp David to talk about it. You know, and there is obviously, as Nancy was suggesting, a disconnect between what you know the staff is doing, like Chris and others, and Jared is quite involved as well, and what the president is saying publicly. He has been reluctant to really outline second-term vision so far. I mean, the, the Trump campaign recently released sort of some broad policy areas that they'd like to focus on. And what are your observations about how the Biden team is doing on their transition efforts? So as far as I can tell, they they have set up a pretty serious transition team so far. Ted Kaufman, a longtime Biden ally, is leading it. And I don't know if you've spoken to Ted on the podcast at all previously, but he is really interested in the transition. He has been for quite some time. And Nancy and I, I think, both talked to him about transition, all things transition related in 2016, because he's sort of, he really knows a lot about it. And they've set up a team, just like the Clinton and Trump people have in the past with with people focused on, you know, nominations and agencies. But, you know, like the Clinton people, the Biden people really don't want to talk about it publicly. And that's because for the exact same reason, they don't want to, you know, be counting their chickens before they hatch. There's a lot of superstitions in politics and they don't want the perception to be out there that they just assume they're going to win. I would just say also, you know, I think that there's an added element that Biden has done really well in the polls just by, you know, staying under the radar. And so I do feel like he's taking a lesson from Clinton, but also just what has worked from him so for him so far this cycle, which is just, you know, sort of letting the election be a referendum on Trump and not necessarily making it a contest between himself and Trump. And and so I think that that mentality at the campaign makes the transition sort of be even lower profile than it normally would be. And how will COVID affect the transition in your, in your view? And how will the fact that we're in a pandemic and you can't go to Pete's Coffee to kind of grab people, you know, how will that affect your reporting? I think COVID's really going to affect the transition because for the Trump people, it has been you know, a necessary distraction. And, and although there are people working on it, COVID has at times really just overwhelmed the White House and they've been struggling to play catch up on that. And so I think it's been something that has, you know, taken away some of their attention from this planning for a second term, both in terms of the policy agenda, but also in terms of what what it could look like in terms of who could serve at the agencies or who could serve in the cabinet. And then for the Biden people, if Biden wins, it means that in addition to the transfer of power and picking a cabinet and you know getting all these people through Senate confirmed positions, the Biden people are going to walk into a White House where they're going to inherit two major crises. One is an economic downturn caused by the pandemic, and the second is the pandemic. 
And they're really going to have to come in and hit the ground running. Yeah, and one could argue that there might be a third crisis, which is a social justice crisis based on the protests and the shootings and just this this huge movement to call for social justice. Yeah, I just think it's such a hectic time in the world. And I think if there's a transfer of power in government, all those things will just be facing the administration on day one. And it will be even more reason for them to sort of be very organized and thoughtful about how the transfer of power goes, but also just who they put in some pretty key personnel slots. And then there are just some day-to-day considerations that you know, including like if you're operating a transition and you're not all in the same place, how does that change the dynamic on the transition team? And how does that affect communication? And will you even move into an office space that the government offers? It makes people question all of those things. I mean, the pandemic does. So a couple final questions. So 2016, we probably had more transition coverage than any other transition, obviously because of the chaos, the move from Christie to Mike Pence, and then the somewhat chaotic transition. Do you think that this transition will get as much coverage as the last transition, should Biden win? I think it will get more coverage or as much or more coverage just because I think that if Biden wins, people will be so curious about how Trump reacts, what Biden's going to do. I, I, I just think there will be really intense interest in in that moment between November and inauguration. And that's assuming we you know, know the results of the election on in early November, which also seems like an outstanding question. Yeah, I mean, just little things about that happen every every transition of power, like meeting in the White House on inauguration day with the the you know outgoing president and the incoming president. I mean, what would that even look like? There are going to be so many fascinating dynamics, both publicly and behind the scenes, if if uh, Biden wins. So my final question would be: If the Biden team would grant you your request to interview anybody on their transition team. Who would it be and what would you ask them? Well, I know I would love to talk to Ted Kaufman. I, and I've talked to him before. He actually spoke to the journal uh, in a live interview just recently. But I would love to t- talk to him and kind of nerd out about all things transition. So if he's listening, I'll tell him to give me a call. I love covering economic policy in addition to the White House. So I would be really interested to learn sort of who they're going to put in charge of all the economic policy and sort of who the potential Treasury Secretary is and geek out with that person about you know, how they're going to respond to the economic crises, how they're going to deal with these disparate wings of the Democratic Party, both, you know, the more centrist Biden voters or Biden supporters with the more progressive sort of AOC Bernie Sanders type. And and so I would sort of try to figure out who that was and pigeonhole that person, I think. Well, if the Biden team is listening, those are the requests and you have two pretty good reporters. <laughs> so Nancy and Andrew, thank you for your time. Thank you for covering this important subject. And thank you for sharing your wisdom with us on Transition Lab. Well, thanks for everything you guys do, just you know, collecting the data and tracking the Senate confirmed positions. And it's a wonderful resource for reporters. So we appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having us. If you like Transition Lab, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast apps.